Chapter One B of John Quincy Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily. John Quincy Adams by John T. Morse. Chapter One B. It is needless to comment upon such spirit and sense, or upon such just appreciation of what was feasible, wise, and right for him, as a New Englander whose surroundings and prospects were widely different from those of the society about him. He must have been strongly imbued by nature with the instincts of his birthplace to have formed, after a seven years' absence at his impressible age, so correct a judgment of the necessities and possibilities of his own career in relationship to the people and ideas of his own country. Home accordingly he came, and by assiduity prepared himself in a very short time to enter the junior class at Harvard College, whence he was graduated in high standing in 1787. From there he went to Newburyport, then a thriving and active seaport enriched by the noble trade of privateering, in addition to more regular maritime business, and entered as a law student the office of Theophilus Parsons, afterwards the Chief Justice of Massachusetts. On July 15, 1790, being twenty-three years old, he was admitted to practice. Immediately afterward he established himself in Boston, where for a time he felt strangely solitary. Clients, of course, did not besiege his doors in the first year, and he appears to have waited rather stubbornly than cheerfully for more active days. These came in good time, and during the second, third, and fourth years his business grew apace to encouraging dimensions. He was, however, doing other work than that of the law, and much more important in its bearing upon his future career. He could not keep his thoughts, nor indeed his hands, from public affairs. When, in 1791, Thomas Paine produced The Rights of Man, Thomas Jefferson, acting as midwife to usher the bantling before the people of the United States, Adams's indignation was fired, and he published anonymously a series of refuting papers over the signature of Publicola. These attracted much attention, not only at home but also abroad, and were by many attributed to John Adams. Two years later, during the excitement aroused by the reception and subsequent outrageous behavior here of the French minister, Genet, Mr. Adams again published in the Boston Sentinel some papers over the signature of Marcellus, discussing with much ability the then new and perplexing question of the neutrality which should be observed by this country in European wars. These were followed by more over the signature of Columbus, and afterwards by still more in the name of Barnevelt, all strongly reprobating the course of the crazy-headed foreigner. The writer was not permitted to remain long unknown. It is not certain, but it is highly probable, that to these articles was due the nomination which Mr. Adams received shortly afterward from President Washington, as Minister-Resident at The Hague. This nomination was sent in to the Senate, May 29, 1794, and was unanimously confirmed on the following day. It may be imagined that the change from the moderate practice of his Boston law office to a European court, of which he knew so well the charms, was not distasteful to him. There are passages in his diary which indicate that he had been chafing with irrepressible impatience in that state of useless and disgraceful insignificancy to which, as it seemed to him, he was relegated, so that at the age of twenty-five, 
when many of the characters who were born for the benefit of their fellow creatures have rendered themselves conspicuous among their contemporaries, I still find myself as obscure, as unknown to the world, as the most indolent or the most stupid of human beings. Entertaining such a restless ambition, he of course accepted the proffered office, though not without some expression of unexplained doubt. October 31st, 1794, found him at The Hague, after a voyage of considerable peril in a leaky ship, commanded by a blundering captain. He was a young diplomat indeed. It was on his 27th birthday that he received his commission. The minister made his advent upon a tumultuous scene. All Europe was getting under arms in the long and desperate struggle with France. Scarcely had he presented his credentials to the stadtholder ere that dignitary was obliged to flee before the conquering standards of the French. Pichegru marched into the capital city of the Low Countries, hung out the tricolor, and established the Batavian Republic as the ally of France. The diplomatic representatives of most of the European powers forthwith left, and Mr. Adams was strongly moved to do the same, though for reasons different from those which actuated his compeers. He was not like them placed in an unpleasant position by the new condition of affairs, but on the contrary he was very cordially treated by the French and their Dutch partisans, and was obliged to fall back upon his native prudence to resist their compromising overtures and dangerous friendship. Without giving offence, he yet kept clear of entanglements, and showed a degree of wisdom and skill which many older and more experienced Americans failed to evince, either abroad or at home, during these exciting years. But he appeared to be left without occupation in the altered condition of affairs, and therefore was considering the propriety of returning, when advices from home induced him to stay. Washington especially wrote that he must not think of retiring, and prophesied that he would soon be found at the head of the diplomatic corps, be the government administered by whomsoever the people may choose. He remained, therefore, at The Hague, a shrewd and close observer of the exciting events occurring around him, industriously pursuing an extensive course of study and reading, making useful acquaintances, acquiring familiarity with foreign languages, with the usages of diplomacy and the habits of distinguished society. He had little public business to transact, it is true, but at least his time was well spent for his own improvement. An episode in his life at The Hague was his visit to England, where he was directed to exchange ratifications of the treaty lately negotiated by Mr. J. But a series of vexatious delays, apparently maliciously contrived, detained him so long that upon his arrival he found this specific task already accomplished by Mr. Deese. He was probably not disappointed that his name thus escaped connection with engagements so odious to a large part of the nation. He had, however, some further business of an informal character to transact with Lord Grenville, and in endeavouring to conduct it, found himself rather awkwardly placed. He was not minister to the court of St. James, having been only vaguely authorized to discuss certain arrangements in a tentative way, without the power to enter into any definitive agreement. But the English cabinet strongly disliking Mr. Dees, who in the absence of Mr. Pickney represented for the time the United States, and much preferring to negotiate with Mr. Adams, sought by many indirect and artful subterfuges to thrust upon him the character of a regularly accredited minister. He had much ado to avoid, without offence, the assumption of functions to which he had no title, but which were with designing courtesy forced upon him. 
His cool and moderate temper, however, carried him successfully through the whole business, alike in its social and its diplomatic aspect. Another negotiation, of a private nature also, he brought to a successful issue during these few months in London. He made the acquaintance of Miss Louisa Catherine Johnson, daughter of Joshua Johnson, then American consul at London, and niece of that Governor Johnson, of Maryland, who had signed the Declaration of Independence, and was afterwards placed on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States. To this lady he became engaged, and returning not long afterward he was married to her on July 26, 1797. It was a thoroughly happy, and for him, a lifelong union. President Washington, toward the close of his second term, transferred Mr. Adams to the court of Portugal. But before his departure thither, his destination was changed. Some degree of embarrassment was felt about this time concerning his further continuance in public office, by reason of his father's accession to the presidency. He wrote to his mother a manly and spirited letter, rebuking her for carelessly dropping an expression indicative of a fear that he might look for some favor at his father's hand. He could neither solicit nor expect anything, he justly said, and he was pained that his mother should not know him better than to entertain any apprehension of his feeling otherwise. It was a perplexing position in which the two were placed. It would be a great hardship to cut short the son's career because of the success of the father, yet the reproach of nepotism could not be lightly encountered, even with the backing of clear consciences. Washington came kindly to the aid of his doubting successor, and in a letter highly complimentary to Mr. John Quincy Adams, strongly urged that the well-merited promotion ought not to be kept from him, foretelling for him a distinguished future in the diplomatic service. These representatives prevailed, and the President's only action as concerned his son consisted in changing his destination from Portugal to Prussia, both missions being at that time of the same grade, though that to Prussia was then established for the first time by the making and confirming of this nomination. To Berlin, accordingly, Mr. Adams proceeded in November 1797, and had the somewhat cruel experience of being questioned at the gates by a dapper lieutenant, who did not know until one of his private soldiers explained to him who the United States of America were. Overcoming this unusual obstacle to a ministerial advent, and succeeding after many months in getting through all the introductory formalities, he found not much more to be done at Berlin than there had been at The Hague. But such useful work as was open to him, he accomplished in the shape of a treaty of amity and commerce between Prussia and the United States. This having been duly ratified by both powers, his further stay seemed so useless that he wrote home suggesting his readiness to return, and while awaiting a reply, he traveled through some portions of Europe which he had not before seen. His recall was one of the last acts of his father's administration, made, says Mr. Seward, that Mr. Jefferson might have no embarrassment in that direction, but quite as probably dictated by a vindictive desire to show how wide was the gulf of animosity which had opened between the family of the disappointed ex-president and his triumphant rival. Mr. Adams, immediately upon his arrival at home, prepared to return to the practice of his profession. It was not altogether an agreeable transition from an embassy at the courts of Europe to a law office in Boston with the necessity of furbishing up long-disused knowledge, and a second time patiently awaiting the influx of clients. But he faced it with his stubborn temper and practical sense. 
The slender promise which he was able to discern in the political outlook could not fail to disappoint him, since his native predilections were unquestionably and strongly in favor of a public career. During his absence, party animosities had been developing rapidly. The first great party victory since the organization of the government had just been won, after a very bitter struggle, by the Republicans or Democrats, as they were then indifferently called, whose exuberant delight found its full counterpart in the angry despondency of the Federalists. That irascible old gentleman, the Elder Adams, having experienced a very Waterloo defeat in the contest for the presidency, had ridden away from the capital, actually in a wild rage, on the night of the 3rd of March, 1801, to avoid the humiliating pageant of Mr. Jefferson's inauguration. Yet far more fierce than this natural party warfare was the internal dissension which rent the federal party in twain. Those cracks upon the surface and subterraneous rumblings, which the experienced observer could for some time have noted, had opened with terrible uproar into a gaping chasm, when John Adams, still in the presidency, suddenly announced his determination to send a mission to France at a crisis when nearly all of his party were looking for war. Perhaps this step was, as his admirers claim, an act of pure and disinterested statesmanship. Certainly its result was fortunate for the country at large. But for John Adams it was ruinous. At the moment when he made the bold move, he doubtless expected to be followed by his party. Extreme was his disappointment and boundless his wrath when he found that he had at his back only a fraction, not improbably less than half, of that party. He learned with infinite chagrin that he had only a divided empire with a private individual, that it was not safe for him, the President of the United States, to originate any important measure without first consulting a lawyer quietly engaged in the practice of his profession in New York, that in short, at least a moiety, in which were to be found the most intelligent members of the great federal party, when in search of guidance, turned their faces toward Alexander Hamilton rather than toward John Adams. These Hamiltonians by no means relished the French mission, so that from this time forth a schism of intense bitterness kept the federal party asunder, and John Adams hated Alexander Hamilton with a vigor not surpassed in the annals of human antipathies. His rage was not assuaged by the conduct of the dreaded foe in the presidential campaign, and the defeated candidate always preferred to charge his failure to Hamilton's machinations rather than to the real will of the people. This, however, was unfair. It was pretty obvious that a majority of the nation had embraced Jeffersonian tenets, and that federalism was moribund. To this condition of affairs, John Quincy Adams returned. Fortunately, he had been compelled to bear no part in the embroilments of the past, and his sagacity must have led him, while listening with filial sympathy to the interpretations placed upon events by his incensed parent, yet to make liberal allowance for the distorting effects of the old gentleman's rage. Still, it was in the main only natural for him to regard himself as a Federalist of the Adams faction. His proclivities had always been with that party. In Massachusetts, the educated and well-to-do classes were almost unanimously of that way of thinking. The select coterie of gentlemen in the state, who in those times bore an active and influential part in politics, were nearly all Hamiltonians, but the adherents of President Adams were numerically strong. Nor was the younger Adams himself long left without his private grievance against Mr. Jefferson, who promptly used the authority vested in him by a new statute to remove Mr. Adams from the position of commissioner in bankruptcy, 
to which, at the time of his resuming business, he had been appointed by the judge of the district court. Long afterward, Jefferson sought to escape the odium of this apparently malicious, and for those days, unusual action, by a very Jeffersonian explanation, tolerably satisfactory to those persons who believed it. On April 5, 1802, Mr. Adams was chosen by the Federalists of Boston to represent them in the State Senate. The office was at that time still sought by men of the best ability and position, and though it was hardly a step upward on the political ladder for one who had represented the nation in foreign parts for eight years, yet Mr. Adams was well content to accept it. At least it reopened the door of political life, and moreover one of his steadfast maxims was never to refuse any function which the people sought to impose upon him. It is worth noting, for its bearing upon controversies soon to be encountered in this narrative, that forty-eight hours had not elapsed after Mr. Adams had taken his seat, before he ventured upon a display of independence which caused much irritation to his Federalist associates. He had the hardihood to propose that the Federalist majority in the legislature should permit the Republican minority to enjoy a proportional representation in the council. It was the first act of my legislative life, he wrote many years afterward, and it marked the principle by which my whole public life has been governed from that day to this. My proposal was unsuccessful, but perhaps it forfeited whatever confidence might have been otherwise bestowed upon me as a party follower. Indeed, all his life long, Mr. Adams was never submissive to the party whip, but voted upon every question precisely according to his opinion of its merits without the slightest regard to the political company in which for the time being he might find himself. A compeer of his in the United States Senate once said of him that he regarded every public measure which came up as he would a proposition in Euclid, abstracted from any party considerations. These frequent derelictions of his were at first forgiven, with a magnanimity really very creditable, so long as it lasted, especially to the Hamiltonians in the Federal Party, and so liberal was this forbearance that when in February 1803 the legislator had to elect a senator to the United States Senate, he was chosen upon the fourth ballot by 86 votes out of 171. This was the more gratifying to him and the more handsome on the part of the anti-Adams men in the party, because the place was eagerly sought by Timothy Pickering, an old man who had strong claims growing out of an almost lifelong and very efficient service in their ranks and who was, moreover, a most staunch adherent of General Hamilton. So in October 1803, we find Mr. Adams on his way to Washington, the raw and unattractive village which then constituted the national capital, wherein there was not, as the pious New Englander instantly noted, a church of any denomination, but those who were religiously disposed were obliged to attend services, usually performed on Sundays, at the Treasury Office and at the Capitol. With what anticipations Mr. Adams's mind was filled during his journey to this embryotic city, his diary does not tell, but if they were in any degree cheerful or sanguine, they were destined to cruel disappointment. He was now probably to appreciate for the first time the fierce vigor of the hostility which his father had excited. In Massachusetts, social connections and friendships probably mitigated the open display of rancor to which in Washington full sway was given. It was not only the Republican majority who showed feelings which in them were at least fair if they were strong, but the federal minority were maliciously pleased to find in the son of the ill-starred John Adams 
a victim on whom to vent that spleen and abuse which were so provokingly ineffective against the solid working majority of their opponents in Congress. The Republicans trampled upon the Federalists, and the Federalists trampled on John Quincy Adams. He spoke seldom, and certainly did not weary the Senators, yet whenever he rose to his feet he was sure of a cold, too often almost an insulting reception. By no chance or possibility could anything which he said or suggested please his prejudiced auditors. The worst augury for any measure was his support. Any motion which he made was sure to be voted down, though not infrequently substantially the same matter being afterward moved by somebody else would be readily carried. That cordiality, assistance, and sense of fellowship which senators from the same state customarily expect and obtain from each other could not be enjoyed for him. For shortly upon his arrival in Washington, Mr. Pickering had been chosen to fill a vacancy in the other Massachusetts senatorship, and appeared upon the scene as a most unwelcome colleague. For a time, indeed, an outward semblance of political comradeship was maintained between them, but it would have been a folly for an Adams to put faith in a Pickering, and perhaps vice versa. This position of his, as the unpopular member of an unpopular minority, could not be misunderstood, and many allusions to it occur in his diary. One day he notes a motion rejected, another day that he has nothing to do but to make fruitless opposition. He constantly recites that he has voted with a small minority, and at least once he himself composed the whole of that minority. Soon after his arrival, he says that an amendment proposed by him will certainly not pass, and indeed I have already seen enough to ascertain that no amendments of my proposing will obtain in the Senate as now filled. Again, I presented my three resolutions which raised a storm as violent as I expected, and on the same day he writes, I have no doubt of incurring much censure and obloquy for this measure. A day or two later he speaks of certain persons who hate me rather more than they love any principle. When he expressed an opinion in favor of ratifying a treaty with the Creeks, he remarks quite philosophically that he believes it surprised almost every member of the Senate and dissatisfied almost all. When he wanted a committee raised, he did not move it himself, but suggested the idea to another senator. For I knew that if I moved it, a spirit of jealousy would immediately be raised against doing anything. Writing once of some resolutions which he intended to propose, he says that they are another feather against a whirlwind, a desperate or fearful cause in which I have embarked, but I must pursue it or feel myself either a coward or a traitor. Another time we find a committee, of which he was a member, making its report when he had not even been notified of its meeting. End of chapter 1b. Recording by Emily, Boston, Massachusetts.